You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. I should tell you that this is my first podcast interview. Yes. Which is good. I'm a little nervous. <laughs> I'm Barbara Sloan with Tipped Finance, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest podcast. I once had a girlfriend in college who worked several jobs, one of which was a server in a local restaurant. I remember her coming home late evenings with sore feet and a wad of small bills. She often counted up her take for the night as I gently massaged her rigid back muscles. At the time, I remember marveling at what looked like a small fortune. She thought of it as fast money on the side Yet today, I also remember the weary looks of her fellow full-time employees. Living on tips appears anything but easy. Can and how do you get ahead? Barbara Sloan is a 20-year veteran of the table, bar, and pole. She is financially independent and provides coaching and accountability for those in the service industry on her platform, Tipped Finance. Barbara, welcome to Earn and Invest. Do me a favor. Describe what you see when you look at your Instagram picture. <laughs> Hi, Doc G. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. What I think about when I see my Instagram photo is a young and excited girl who is having the time of her life. Describe what you actually see in the picture. For those of us who can't oh. see it, what, what's actually in the picture? Oh, yeah. So I'm upside down. I'm on a pole. And I'm in small attire (laughs) and there's dollar bills all over me. And I've seen you note in your Instagram account, the day you took that picture was something like 10 years ago. And that day was notable for something else that happened. Describe what happened after that shift. Yeah. So I was abducted by a cab company or a cab driver. This was in Boston It was after a long shift of dancing, I got into the car and told them my destination and the driver said, I know where I'm going. And I thought, okay, great. He knows where he's going. I looked down at my phone and just kind of checked out and I looked up and noticed we had passed my exit and that we were headed towards the Mystic River. I tried to redirect and I was like, Hey, I actually think we missed our stop. Let's, can we, can we turn around? The driver just kept saying, I know where I'm going. Probably the scariest night of my life. And it ended with me jumping out of a moving vehicle, running as fast and hard as I could, rolling under a truck and hiding out. Thankfully, my phone was charged. 
And I called my now spouse and had her come pick me up. Let's look at the juxtaposition of that picture, which happened just minutes before, just hours before then being abducted. Do you connect the two? I mean, your platform is tipped finance. You've worked in the service industry. Tell me about the risks to people in the service industry. Two-thirds of people who work in the tipped industry are women. And I would say that almost every woman I know has had an encounter where they didn't feel safe and they didn't feel okay. So I don't think that this is unique to the industry, but I do think that there are additional safety precautions that people in the industry need to be aware of. You are often leaving a shift exhausted, sometimes under the influence, often with large amounts of money. So it just requires another layer of awareness and making sure you're doing things like having someone walk you to your car. If you're going to your car, making sure that your money is not out in your hand, making sure that your cell phone is fully charged, things like that. Barbara, in your Instagram profile, it says that you were a 20-year veteran of the table, bar, and pole. Tell us a little bit about your work history in the service industry. I'll start by telling you a little bit about what I'm doing today, and we'll work backwards. Most people who meet me today know me as a partner in a women-owned construction company in New York City. What they don't know is that I often worked two careers in tandem, and that was construction in the day and service industry in the night or dirt in the day and dirty in the evening, as I like to say. When I was in my, when I turned 21, I moved to California. And over the next few years, I moved around the country a lot. And moving around, it was very easy for me to pick up service industry jobs. I worked as a waitress. I worked as a bartender. I worked as a cater waiter. I worked as a shot girl. I worked as a go-go dancer. I worked as a pole dancer. I worked as a, you name it. If it earned tips, I did it. I worked at Benway Park. I was a coyote in New York. I was a showgirl. I worked in Las Vegas. So I feel like I have a good understanding of the industry as my experience kind of runs the gamut. Tell me a little bit about what was appealing about the service industry. Obviously, it's been something you've been doing it for years. And specifically, you said dirt in the day and dirty at night. So certainly some of those jobs had a little bit more of illicit nature. Was it the pay? Like what drew you to those? Yeah, I think in the beginning, it was that you could start right away and you could start earning cash right away. And I really liked that. I also liked that it was location independent. You could move around and pick up a job pretty quickly. People valued your skills and knowing that you could adapt quickly, especially working in bigger cities like LA and New York and Las Vegas and Boston. So I liked the flexibility of the schedule. It allowed me a lot of freedom. I liked the instant cash. I liked the camaraderie of the girls and the people that I worked with. I wouldn't say I had the toughest upbringing, but I think I had a pretty serious upbringing. And going into the service industry, it just felt easy. And it felt nice to connect with people while they were having fun and enjoying themselves. I remember going to community college and had a professor once tell me that the happiest profession in the world were hairstylists. And I remember asking them why. And he said, they get to see the beginning and the end of a creative process every single day. They get to build a skill set that they can take anywhere in the world. They have autonomy with their clients. 
They get social engagement with new people on a daily basis, and they still get to build relationships with their peers around them. And I think that applies to a lot of the jobs that tipped people perform. And I think there's a real appeal there. In the financial independence community, we talk about a life well lived. And if you had told me at the age of 20 that I could achieve financial independence by working in this community, if I just followed some simple steps, I would have jumped at that. I would have done whatever anyone told me to to do. And I think that there is real possibility in this industry for people to achieve financial independence. You said that if anyone had told you in the tipped industry, you could reach financial independence, you would have jumped at that. What opened your eyes eventually to personal finance and financial independence? So you're involved in dirt during the day and the dirty at the night. Where does financial independence come in? Financial independence for me started about five years ago. I started deep diving all the content I could get. I was listening to podcasts. I was reading everything I could get my hands on. Some of that had to do with the political climate in the country. Some of it had to do with just wanting to understand where I was at and what I needed to do in order to make plans. And over and over again, I saw people giving advice and I never saw myself in that advice. It was advice like, you know, putting, making sure you get the match in your 401k and how to ask for a raise. And I never saw anyone in the tipped industry in those interviews, in those stories, talking about the very unique opportunities and unique hazards that are present. Let's jump into those opportunities and those hazards, because like you, I think a lot of people in this community don't know about the tipped lifestyle unless they are in it themselves. How big is the service industry in America? I know you already said that about two-thirds service workers are women, but what do the numbers look like in the U.S.? There's over 4 million people who work solely or partially on a tip-based income, right? And so that's from the Department of Labor looking up just various tipped employment titles. I know for doctors, there's 1.1 million, right? So it's a big group of individuals that have no one giving them traditional financial advice. They're missing out on traditional wealth building opportunities. They've been left behind in a lot of ways. And the only time they are approached by financial services industry is often in a very predatory way. When I think about the biggest hazard that people in the service industry face, it is that they are so good at the selling of lifestyle, of fun, of drinks, of food, of you know, sexy environments. Of, they're so good at selling that, that they ultimately become the best consumer of it as well. What needs to happen, I think, for a lot of people is that they need to develop an awareness that they are subject to this influence while they are in this industry. They are more subject to seeing people at all times enjoying themselves, right? They are always surrounded by people who are eating great food, drinking great drinks, having fun at the club. And when you're surrounded by that, you want that as well. And so you become a consumer of it. There are, there are other hazards that go along with the tipped industry. People are often burnt out. There's substances, there's poor boundaries, but those are not exclusive. Those hazards can be found in many industries. My mission and what I want to do is work directly with tipped workers, 
There are systemic issues at the corporate, federal, state level, and for people who have language and network and bandwidth to tackle those problems, I encourage those people. But that's not my experience, and that's that's not where I'm headed. As I said, I worked in the construction industry, I work in the construction industry, and in construction, when there were a lot of worker injuries, when there were a lot of deaths in the industry federal agencies, the government put in place OSHA. And what OSHA did is they educated employers and then they educated the workforce. And in educating the workforce, they changed the entire industry. And so in the personal finance space, I often hear people say, oh, you're in the service industry. You should get out and make more money. So we are taking the people who are the closest to being able to model good financial habits and we are removing them from the industry. We are abandoning those four plus billion people and taking the people who are closest and and chipping them into other industries. And I just don't think that's what's best for the industry. And I don't think that we're going, we're not going to eliminate this industry. So I want to change it from within. And I think that the labor force, the workers, the professionals that work in the service industry and work for tips have the ability to change the industry from within. And I think that's They can do that through modeling. I think they can do that through putting systems in place. In my book, Tipped, we have a bunch of chapters where we talk about the different types of systems that people have to put in place. What the tipped industry and service industry professionals lack is that they're excluded from all of these traditional wealth building opportunities, right? There are no 401ks. There are no paid time off days. They oftentimes do not claim their tips and therefore are excluded from one of the biggest safety nets, which is social security, right? So social security was put in place by the government when they realized that people were falling through the cracks between pensions and 401ks. The only people who are still falling through that crack are tipped employees. They're also the only group of employees who are held to a different minimum wage standard than everyone else in the country. So The minimum wage federally, tipped workers make $2.13 an hour. Those are just some of the the barriers that tipped employees have to overcome in order to build wealth. A lot of people in the financial independence space talk about real estate, right? Real estate's a great way to build wealth. If you're not claiming your tips because you're trying to save money on taxes, then you're not able to qualify for traditional lending, making it one more, you know, one step harder for you to get into that game as well. In my book, we break down a lot of those systems that people can put into place themselves. And that's that's my goal is to educate people on how to build those systems themselves, systems that typically for most of America are provided by their employers. You know, it's an interesting point. When you started talking about this, you specifically said that the financial advice is usually to get out of the service industry. Why do you think people have such a negative connotation of it outside, especially since what you're kind of telling us is, look, you can build wealth within this industry if this is your calling. Why do you think people are so negative about it? I think it just has really bad PR. I think the industry itself needs better PR. When people look at strippers, they think of the ultimate moral failing, right? What other position did society see as a moral failing? Waste management, for example, people used to say, don't become a stripper and don't become a garbage man. But guess what? Waste management industry, they cleaned up their act. They got some good PR. People are like, oh, those benefits are amazing. Those people make so much money. 
it's not looked down on so much these days. However, people in the service industry are still facing the stigma, the shame of being in this industry of, of enjoying it, right? It's, it's not considered highbrow. It's not considered intellectual. It's not considered a skill, which is sad because there's an entire part in my book where I talk about all of the skills that you gain while working in the service industry that can pivot and, and help other industries should, should you want to leave the industry, right? So I don't have a stake in whether people stay in the industry or go. I say, you can be here for a good time. You can be here for a long time, but let's get on the best financial footing while you're here in the least suspecting place. In fact, you coined the term dirty fire. Do you want to explain what that is? (laughs) Dirty fire. Yes. So dirty fire is when you may look for morally ambiguous avenues to saving and growing wealth (laughs) on your journey to financial independence. Some examples that I discuss are, you know, if you use somebody's streaming password or, you know, if you grab a couple extra tampons when you're in the ladies room, or (laughs) for instance, there was somebody who talked in the comments section of that post about donating a sperm bank, right? So things that people might say is (laughs) a little taboo or uncouth ways that you can save or make money. Do you put some of the work service workers do in that category? That's a good question. Dirty fire, I think for some people would feel shameful. And I don't like to operate around shame. There's a lot of overlap in the service industry and in sex work industry. And there shouldn't be shame in anyone's, anyone's way of making money. So let's talk about some of the other reasons why people haven't been looking towards the service industry as a way of accumulating wealth. Let's talk about career stability and longevity. I mean, do people stay in these jobs long-term? I'm thinking about that story I told in the beginning of of a girlfriend who worked in the restaurant business. I don't know. It, It looks hard to stay in that business for 30, 40 years. Yeah, I think there's a lot of industries where it's hard to stay in it for 30, 40 years without the right systems in place. The other one I'm currently in as well, which is construction. There are a lot of industries where there are tolls on your body, but there's also industries that take large tolls on your mental health as well. I'm looking at Wall Street, right? Like a lot of people work in toxic environments where they it's not sustainable for them to work 30 or 40 year careers and come out unscathed. So I do think it's possible to have a 30, 40 year career in, in these positions if you want it. I also think it's entirely possible to achieve financial independence and or retire early within these careers. So with the right systems in place, I don't think you need to have it turn into a 30 to 40 year career. I also think that if you develop the right systems you don't have to work full time. In the financial independence space, we talk a lot about sequence of return risk, right? We talk about the first five years and how important they are after you pull the RE plug, right? I belong to a couple of fire groups and people will be talking about that. And, oh, what will you do if there's a downturn in the market? And people will say, oh, well, I'll go back to work. And I'll ask them, well, what would you do? And they'll say, I'll go back to be a barista. I'll go back to be a bartender. I'll go back to be a waiter. And I'll say, why? And they'll say, that was my favorite job ever. It's different when you do work for 60 hours than when you do work for 15 hours. It has a different reaction on your body. And in fact, I think that 
walking around and moving for that number of hours is great for your body. Our bodies are meant to move, especially as we get older. And so I think it can be a nice addition to financial independence, right? I think the buy community, people should go into the service industry after they achieve it. You have flexible schedules. You're still getting cash. You are still having that social element that so many people who retire early miss. This is an overlooked industry in a lot of ways. I wonder as you make that point, if one of the reasons that people don't see the service industry as a wealth accumulator is our most familiarity with it is often as a transitional job, right? We see people doing it as a second job, or we see college students doing it on their way to getting a degree to do something else. Do you see that maybe some of the transitional nature of how people use service jobs actually takes away from other people taking them serious when it comes to financial prospects? Certainly. Yeah. I definitely think that that's part of the stigma is that people use it as a stepping stone, but that's also a feature. That's also what makes it so great is that you can enter and exit as you need it in your life. You can choose to do other things and then re-enter the workforce. Jillian John Roots talks about taking many retirements all of the time. And I think that if the service industry found these concepts, it would be implemented in that industry. We've been talking a little bit about the hurdles of the service industry. Let's talk about health and healthcare. Are there some specific health risks with the service industry? And do you have trouble finding healthcare coverage as a service industry worker? Yeah, I'll I'll speak from my own experience. I went probably 10 years without health insurance, dental insurance. I think what's great right now is that we do have this marketplace and that people can access health insurance on their own without an employer. And I think that more people will continue to get the, the insurance that they need. It is a cost, but also when people, I, I, I discuss healthcare in the book and talk about when you don't have preventative healthcare and the cost for catching up, right? Let's say you haven't gone to the dentist in 10 years. I will tell you that that first bill was not pretty and that I probably should have paid out of pocket and or had a policy in place and it would have saved me a lot more money. So some of it's just short-term thinking and not having the right frameworks in place. We are talking with Barbara Sloan. Her platform is Tipped Finance, where she teaches service workers how to reach for financial independence. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. All right. So most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor. And it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. 
Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. Hey, everybody. I just wanted to remind you that if you're enjoying the Earn and Invest podcast, there are a few other ways in which you can interact with our community. The first is our Facebook group. This is the place where we discuss all our episodes of personal finance, today's headlines. Just go to earnandinvest.com slash Facebook. Again, that's earnandinvest.com. Dot com slash Facebook. While you're there, you can also go to earnandinvest.com. That is my website where you can find all of our old episodes, some blog posts, as well as video content. We'd love to see you there. You can join our newsletter. Also, my new website, jordangrummet.com, that's J-O-R-D-A-N-G-R-U-M-E-T.com, is now live, and there you can go to find out everything about the book launch, which is scheduled for August 2022. My book, Taking Stock, is about the confluence of my knowledge as a personal finance podcaster, as well as end of life as a hospice doctor. I talk about the stories what I've learned from taking care of people as they've near death and what that has taught them about money and happiness. Check us out at any of these places, and I'd love to see you become part of our community. Now back to the show. Barbara Sloan is a 20-year veteran of the table, bar, and pole. She is financially independent and provides coaching and accountability for those in the service industry. Barbara, there are some connections between service work and the personal finance world. I want to take a quote from your Instagram account. I worked in the fetish space for a number of years and with clients. During that time, I learned that unless you're hurting someone else without their consent, then all the other cards are on the table and there are a lot of cards. I feel that way about your budget too. Explain that quote for me. How how is budgeting like working in the fetish world? When you think about your budget, I think most people feel as though it's the things they should have instead of the things that they want to have. And I think that if people start thinking about their budget as the things that they can have, there's some overlap. You can budget for toys. <laughs> you can budget for substances. You can budget for a lot of things that people may shame or judge you for, but that doesn't mean that they cannot and should not be a part of your budget. You don't have to become an entirely different person to budget. You are good enough and your life is perfect to start right where you are now. And I think that if people felt less shame surrounding their budget, they would be more inclined to start telling their money where they want it to go. 
Talk about some other lessons you've learned about personal finance from being in the service industry. Like, what does the service industry have to teach us about managing our finances? I think the service industry is great for teaching people hustle. And we're not talking about toxic hustle. We're not talking about, we're talking about the kind of hustle that comes from you, directed by you, where you are entering your workshop and you are scanning the environment and you are looking for opportunities, right? I think that the financial independence space and really all industries can look at people and identify that hustle mentality, the healthy kind where you're not sacrificing your wellness for it, but you are pushing to save a little more or to gamify it in a way that benefits yourself. There's not a lot of industries where you can work more to make more. And I think that the service industry can teach people how to hustle responsibly. Tell me, do you think that within the service sector, within these circles, people are talking about their finances? I mean, is this something that people are discussing openly in service jobs amongst each other? People in the service industry typically talk about what they make, and they also don't have a problem saying what they spend money on. So as a community, they are often already talking about money, but what they're not talking about is saving. And what they're not talking about is investing. And what they're not talking about is how they don't have an HR person who is there to help walk them through setting up these systems. One of the examples I give in the book is is a comparison of two people, one person who's in a traditional nine to five and one person who's in the service industry. I feel that human resources position is vital for a lot of Americans in building their wealth. They have one person, we'll call her Sharon, HR Sharon. (laughs) HR Sharon, I like that. HR Sharon just tells you to check this box and put this money. And then at the end of 20 years, Jason, we'll call him Jason, the worker, he has 800K. And this person who's in the service industry who doesn't have HR Sharon has maybe eight. So that automated aspect, those other people pushing you towards setup, it's a big part of why people in the nine to five world are able to build wealth and why people in the service industry often don't. Is there any access to these type of services? I mean, there's got to be a percentage of service jobs that actually have an HR person and a 401k and health insurance. Tell me what percentage do you imagine actually have access to these tools compared to the rest? If I had to guess, I would say less than 5%, right? And things are changing. You know, New York State, for instance, just put in place that they were going to require employers with more than 15 people to automatically either set up a 401k or enroll employees into the state program, right? So there are things that are changing and maybe in certain states, tipped employees will be a part of that. And I am all for that. But I would say the majority of people in the industry do not have access to a 401k. If you could have a wish list of structural, governmental, or political change that you think would help service workers, what types of things would be on it? Would be a change in the minimum wage, Uh, Would it be benefits? What types of things would be on your wish list for systemic change when it comes to service workers? I mean, I think everyone deserves a living wage. So I think an increased minimum wage is more than overdue. We should probably pay back pay for all the labor that the people in the industry have done for free. I do think that more employers should get some HR, get some systems in place, offer paid time off. 
paid time off is the reason that most people in the nine to five world don't experience burnout. It's also one of the reasons that employers have longevity with their employees, right? If you know that you walking out of your job today, you're going to leave two weeks vacation on the table. You are less likely to be impulsive and walk out of your job. There's no cards on the table for service employees. They have nothing holding them there. They have nothing to make them think, oh, no, wait, I guess I'll let this person talk to me this way. And I won't walk out the door because I would be leaving this behind. I think some of the aspects of the transientness of the industry is is also because of the fact that those benefits are not in place. Let's talk about the pandemic. Obviously, no one saw it coming. How do you think it affected the service industry? So I wrote a bonus chapter for my book about service industry in, in the world of COVID. So if you go to my website and you subscribe with your email, I will send you out a copy of that bonus chapter, which goes in depth into my opinions on how it has benefited and hurt the industry. When I first moved to New York and I was looking for a service industry job, I remember going to high-end places and clubs and bars and restaurants and all the managers were just like, you don't have New York City experience. You are not going to work here. And I was like, no, no, but I have Las Vegas experience. So I know how to hustle and I have LA experience. So I know how to deal with attitudes and I have Detroit experience. So I know how not to take bullshit. And everyone was like, no, sorry, sorry, sorry. You have to have New York experience or you're not invited to this party. And I think that the pandemic has opened some doors for maybe people who felt they couldn't get into certain types of establishments to strive for more or maybe leave a toxic employer. And so I think for employees after coming out of COVID, what they're seeing is a workforce that has more doors open to them. But I also think a lot of employees experienced greater burnout initially after returning to work. What about the time off? I mean, did this really hit the service industry's pocketbooks? We're talking about a serv- an industry that has very little savings, right? Probably no 401k because they have no HR. What happens when all of a sudden you can't work for a year or six months or your establishments are closed? Yeah. So in 2008, 2010, with the financial and the housing crisis, I remember thinking that our industry was recession-proof. I remember making so much money because people were struggling. And when people are struggling, they want to go out and have a good time. They want to connect with other people. They want to drown their sorrows in a couple of beers and, and to have somebody welcome them and say, this sucks. I know it's really, it's really bad. And so I think a lot of industry people did well in that. And they thought that they, because they assumed their industry was recession proof, that they didn't save for that rainy day. They thought that next shift would always be there. And so I think COVID was great for my coaching practice in that it helps me tell people in the industry, you have to have an emergency fund. You have to have some sinking funds to float you. You have to prepare because we are not recession-proof. We are still vulnerable. You mentioned your coaching practice. Is the advice you give to tipped workers different than traditional financial advice? Like, are there some parts of your advice that don't work out in the rest of the world, but are especially important for tipped workers? 
Yes. I think when we're talking about setting up your own set of benefits, it's very different. Tipped workers have to be more educated about their finances, about their benefits than traditional nine to fivers who have employer provided benefits. You have to be a more educated consumer. And so we go more into depth about how to develop paid time off for yourself, how to put health insurance in place for yourself, how to protect and save money, how to claim your tips, how to deal with taxes, right? So it's it's a little different. So I imagine that there are a lot of young people who are considering either doing the service industry part-time or full-time. Maybe they're going to college, maybe they're not. If you could look at your younger self, what kind is the first advice you'd give to someone who's thinking about going into the service industry and making a living at least somewhat off of tips? Yeah, I would say you have to you have to create an emergency savings plan for yourself. You have to start investing. You have to clean your tips for the most part. We can have that conversation and there's always exceptions to the rules, but for the most part, claiming your tips, tracking and keeping a budget, saving for an emergency fund, saving for down payment on a home. Is the advice any different for some of the more illicit aspects of service versus the more traditional? So I would say, for instance, working at a restaurant is a pretty traditional service job, yet being a go-go or a pole dancer is probably a little bit more of the illicit side. Is the information you give tipped workers different depending on what type of service job they have? So I talk a lot in the book about freedom and about choice. And so as long as you're in an environment where you feel you have freedom and choice, then I think the advice is pretty similar. If you don't feel like you have freedom and choice, then I would encourage you to exit in a, the safest way possible. We can have different conversations <laughs> about hazards in club environments versus in restaurants. And there are going to be a lot of differences. And we talk a lot about that in the book, for examples. But I would say, for the most part, they are the same, right? We are still dealing with clients. We are still dealing with tips. We are still dealing with making sure that we are not over-consuming what we are selling and that we are putting good boundaries in place. You can have poor boundaries in a restaurant as easily as you can have poor boundaries in a club. And so developing that path to financial independence only gives you more fortitude in setting those boundaries. So we've mentioned your book a few times. Tell us the running title when it comes out and specifically what it's about. The title is called Tips, the life-changing guide to financial freedom for waitresses, bartenders, strippers, and all service industry professionals. And what it's about is a lot of what we've covered in this conversation. So it talks about all of the ways that tips people are excluded from traditional wealth building opportunities. We break down a lot of the concepts and pillars of personal finance, and then we adapt them so that they work for people who are working in a tipped profession. We talked about the industry hazard and pitfalls that people can fall into, things like substances, things like gambling, things like paying more for the things to show up to your shift or to your job, the cost of working for people in the service industry. And then we go into some money diary stories where we explore different types of budgets and ways that you can, you know, see what your money looks like within a month. 
Tell us one of your favorite stories from the book. One of my favorite stories in the book is the first time I sat down with a financial advisor. (laughs) And this person told me that I needed $7 million to retire. (laughs) Wow. Seven million is a lot of money. Yeah. And then they told me how much I needed an emergent in inside of an emergency fund. I remember thinking that amount is insane. I live in New York city. There's no way that I'm going to be able to have that much money in cash just sitting there. When we left that phone call, I was dead set on proving him wrong. So I read everything I could on emergency funds. (laughs) Turns out that was the one thing he was right about. (laughs) And It also was something that didn't take as long as I thought to build it. Uh, I was working at Coyote Ugly, which I don't know if people are familiar from the movie, but it's a bar where you sing and dance on the bar and you kind of abuse patrons. (laughs) And I made really great money there, but it was also money that went right out the door the next day. So once I had that number in my head of this is what my emergency fund needs to be, it took no time at all for me to put it in place once I set my mind on doing that. And so I think in the service industry, we have a lot of people that ask us, what's your real job? What are you going towards? What's next? Are you in school? And they assume that we're not smart and that we're not capable. I think sometimes other people's words have a way of creeping into our opinions and our thoughts about our abilities And I think that is one of the hazards of the industry. What I learned in that moment was that we have a lot more power and a lot more ability than other people realize. That reminds me, dealing with what service industry people deal with, are there support places or support spaces either financially or otherwise that especially if you're new to the service industry, you can seek out and get some of that support needed to kind of continue in this industry. I haven't heard of anything. And if, if somebody has a resource for that, please, you know, find me on Instagram, find my website, reach out to me because I would love to be able to provide more resources to people in the industry. I think we're talking a lot more about mental health these days. We're talking a lot more about boundaries after the Me Too movement. I think bad actors are slowly being reduced and the way that the world communicates, right? We can call people out, we can cancel culture, all of those things for, those things are helping to change the industry as well. Community, as, as we know in the financial independence space is very important. And I think that's been part of the problem for people in the service industry is that there's a real lack of modeling. It's seen as uncool to save your money. It's seen as uncool to think about things like retirement. But it's actually pretty cool. After Tipped launches, my next book that I'm going to work on is called Tipped Confidential. And that's going to be more of a fully in-depth money diaries of people who are in the industry and who are doing great things with their money. Because I think there needs to be a lot more visibility for those stories of the people who are 
finding retirement cool, who are retiring early, who are financially independent, who are helping other people in the industry get set up, right? On my Instagram, one of the posts that I talked about was start an investment club at your restaurant, at your club, at your bar. Doing things with other people makes it feel less scary, makes you feel less alone. And so if there's no one talking to you about setting these systems up, then you need to be talking to other people. And if you're listening to this or you're listening to me, then you're ahead, so far ahead of your peers, and you need to become a leader in that space. One of those support spaces will undoubtedly be your book. When is it coming out? So my hope right now is that it comes out in January of 2022. And then I hope to do a book tour shortly after. Excellent. I look forward to seeing it and to seeing you out on tour. I think many people misunderstand the service industry. And certainly up to this point, most don't realize that you can make a living off of tips. And what you're demonstrating is that just like any personal finance or financial independence journey, it's a change in mindset and knowing the right information that will help you fuel your journey. So it's really exciting to hear that tipped work doesn't have to be a way station. It doesn't have to be a transition, but for those who love it, it can be a very successful way of life. Barbara, I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what is up next in your life. And if people want to know more, where can they find you? Yeah. So what's up next is we are going to launch tipped, which is my first book. And I'm very excited. And I think it's packed full of tips, tricks, games, and strategies that tipped workers can implement. After that, hopefully Tipped Confidential will be shortly following. People can find me on my Instagram. I make a meme a day. <laughs> the Instagram handle is at Tipped Finance. You can also find me on my website, uh, www.tippedfinance.com, where you can reach out to me for one-on-one coaching. You can pre-order our copy of the book, Tipped, or we could just connect. Like I love to see industry people win. If you want to tell me about a win you have, I'm going to get so excited. And I would suggest highly people do go check out her Instagram. It is full of interesting, funny, and occasionally salacious posts, which will keep you interested and coming back. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Barbara Sloan. That's a wrap. Cool. So do you feel like we covered the topic well? Were there things we didn't talk about that we should have? I think we covered a lot. I'm really happy with everything we got out. Yeah, I mean, I think you're you're a great spokesperson because it's so clear how passionate you are about talking about life for people in the service industry. And I do feel at least in the personal finance community, Yeah, we don't necessarily like embrace that idea. I mean, I think if you bring it, it's a pretty open community. So if you say, hey, can a tipped worker or a service worker become financially independent or be good with their money? Of course, we would say yes. But it's not first and foremost. If you say, well, how do you build wealth? They're not going to say, you know, go work at a restaurant, you know, go be a stripper or pole dancer. I mean, it's not going to be our first 
first statement, but um, I think you bring to light the fact that it could be if that was really what someone wants to do with their life. And I think, you know, it's that limiting mindset, right? It's like, oh, well, you're not going to make a fortune doing that. You might make some quick money, right? You're in college. You need a little extra money for something, right? Mm -hmm. But um, I think we fail to see it as a long-term money or wealth building plan. And maybe that's wrong. I definitely think it's wrong. We all throw around the janitor who retires early, right? Who's making a $40,000 income. And if we just take that example alone, then it shows us what's possible. And that's definitely possible in the service industry. Yeah. Yeah. And what I also like about your story is um, how much you embrace it, right? So again, it's very clear to me from talking to you, you love these jobs. Like, from anything to what sounds like mundane to more exciting, it sounds like the whole gamut of them you found kind of interesting, fun things about it. And it it's it's okay if that's what you like doing, right? Like if you like being a server, if you like being a bartender and you like chatting people up and having fun and bringing up the energy of the restaurant or bar you're in, um, like that's great. Like that's a good way to spend your life if you enjoy it. And uh we don't have to say, oh, but you don't make any money doing that because maybe that's not true. Yeah, I definitely do not think that has to be true. Do you have, like in your experience after doing this for many years, did you meet some really financially savvy people? Like, did you meet some people who were totally like killing it and saving their money and like, oh yeah, they're like working in a restaurant or they're a pole dancer or whatever, but then you went and they had a really nice house and a nice car and, and millions in the bank and, and were totally taking care of themselves? I've met a couple who are doing okay in this process. Over the past few years, I've started to ask a lot more questions when I'm meeting and talking to people in the service industry. And I've met a few who are doing really impressive things and who are saving and investing. Do you think they almost keep that quiet? Like maybe they don't want to bring that into their service industry job as if almost the exact opposite. Like they don't want anyone to think they're getting too far ahead or there's something about being in that industry that you want to play off being kind of a little bit poor or a little bit kind of party-ish? Yeah, I think sometimes people are scared to show that they're ambitious, yeah. right? It can it can seem not cool to be ambitious and to care, right? Yeah. So I do think people will downplay. I definitely downplayed for a long time about what I was doing and how well I was doing. I downplayed it. Yeah, yeah. So tell me about being a first-time author. You and I share this, that we both have books coming out uh, next year. Excitement, worry, fear, anxiety, joy, all of it. <laughs> I'm excited because it feels like I wrote most of this book in a vacuum. And I'm really excited to start sharing it with people. My editor said, you know it's ready to come out when you're just so over reading it. And I'm not there yet but I'm close. <laughs> I was about to say I'm over reading mine, but it's not ready to come out yet. <laughs> I just had to stop reading it. So I'm lucky because I'm right in the middle of the editing process. So like I can put it down for a while, let them edit it and then bring it back and, and start re reading again. But uh, that's interesting. Yeah. Has your editor been so as a first time author, my editor, she doesn't edit any of my words. She tells me where I need to go back and yeah. re and look at things. Has that been your experience too? So I'm working with Ulysses Press. And so what we're doing is I actually decided 
they they said you can do it however you want. You want to hand the whole thing in, you want to hand it in chapter by chapter, you want to hand half of it in, we'll take a look and then you can go do the next. So what I decided is to hand a few chapters in at a time. And I took my draft and then my agent did some light editing. And then the project manager, who's an editor for Ulysses Press, did some light editing. Um and most of the time it would be like change, you need to change the sentence around. Occasionally they would give specific words like. Or a lot of times it was like, get rid of this and add a the here, those kind of simple things. Um, occasionally they would suggest a sentence. They'd say, I think you need another sentence like this, maybe in your own words. Um, so, but yes, they're very careful not to write it for you per se. Right. Right. Um, now we, so I handed in everything for the whole um, book and it's been read by my agent and the kind of organizing editor. And they've kind of added in their two cents. So now it goes for deep editing. So that's going to be a little bit more aggressive. And I think I think there's two rounds of deeper editing. And then we kind of make a PDF. And that becomes pretty much the final version, unless there's some kind of major thing that needs to be changed. Um, and I'm hoping to be at the PDF stage by January. Um, because I'm going to start looking for kind of getting my blurbs and, you know, trying to figure out if we're going to make an audio version and all that kind of stuff. Cause we still own the rights for the audio version. If we want to, if we want to put it out there. Um, and then our drop date is supposedly August 2nd, 2022. Okay. So I don't know if you're traditional press or self-publishing. So I don't have as much say they kind of tell me when they want to drop it. Um, I don't know how much control you have over your drop date. So I went back and forth a lot on whether to pursue traditional publishing or to self-publish. And this is another example of, I kind of wanted to eat my own cookie, right? I'm giving the advice that people can do things in a non-traditional way and still have success. And so ultimately I decided I need to self-publish so I can show people that you can do things on your own. You can set up systems on your own. You can, you can get things out into the world on your own, um, so that was part of my decision making. Right or wrong, I did want to have the most reach. So I'm not sure if it was the right decision, but I don't think it'll hurt you very much. Ultimately, um, unless I believe you're like expected to be one of the top five, 10 books out there, mostly still marketing and everything is mostly up to you. Um, not all. Um, I think your press can do some things, but I don't think it's an Achilles heel per se. Um, and I know, you know, I'm good friends with JL Collins. His book was self-published and is one of the most successful business books out there. So like it can certainly be done. Um, there's no question about it. And of course, the nice part is you get a lot more of the profits. Yeah, right? that's true. So that's every true. book that sells, you're going to make double, triple the money on it. So, yeah. And then I can put that back into this mission of powering, educating everyone in the service industry. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Well, thank you for being on the show. I think this is a unique topic and I'm glad I got a chance to talk to you about it.
It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.